Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. This is Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. Today, we are talking with Claire Whitehurst, a painter, printmaker, and ceramicist living and working in Mississippi. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're so excited that you're here today, and we can't wait to hear more about you and your life full of art creation and teaching. You're also teaching right now. So, so let's start there. Let's talk, just hear a few words from you about what you're doing now um, and where where you are located in the state. Okay. Um, I'm in Jackson, or in Ridgeland, I guess, outside of Jackson, at um, teaching at St. Andrews Episcopal School. Um, I am the upper school art teacher. Um, there are two of us. I work with Andy Sprayberry, um, who's also an artist. And um, I teach art studio, AP studio, AP art history, ceramics, and then I'm in charge of the yearbook too. So there's a lot of hats here. Um, I actually just got done teaching an AP art history class where we were talking about the Renaissance and Sistine Chapel and the School of Athens and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and then I'm also an artist full-time outside of school. Um, I work across painting, printmaking and ceramics and um, yeah, it's a lot going on right now. I've never been this busy, but it's really good. And it feels really good to be back in Mississippi for me at the moment. I just graduated um, in 2020 from the University of Iowa with um, degrees in painting, printmaking and ceramics. So um, yeah, I'm just living that post-grad life of trying to figure out where I am and what I wanna do and you know how to move around those things. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we're glad that you're back. And uh, I know that St. Andrews and, and the students are glad to have you over there. Um, so let's, and I, I can't wait to get into all that, especially uh, life after grad school. I know that's a, a transition in any field, but especially a field of arts where there's literally no clear path <laughs> written out for anyone and in the arts. You throw in, you throw in a global pandemic and that it's just it's get, it complicates things so so we'll get to that in a little bit but let, let's start off by talking a little bit more about um your background where'd you grow up let's start there um well I was born in Baton Rouge Louisiana and um my parents are both from Louisiana my dad's from New Orleans and my mom's from little town Ruston outside of Monroe in North Louisiana and uh I was born in Baton Rouge and then we moved to Jackson around the year 2000. So yeah, I kind of grow, I grew up kind of between two places. I've always loved Louisiana and feel like that's where I'm from, but also contend with Mississippi. You know, it's not geographically very far away, but it's very um, 
I think plants and plant life, both my parents are scientists adjacent and my mom's an infectious disease doctor and my dad is an environmental um, lawyer, but he was originally a marine biologist. So I had this two parents who were acutely aware of, of the natural world. And so a lot of my time was spent outside just looking at things. And I think that was what was so different for me, Louisiana, where I was in South Louisiana and, you know, central Mississippi are very different um, ecologically, not, not too dramatic, but um, I love swamps. I love the dramatic weather. Just, it was a lot to, to be in as a child, so. Yeah, it's um, very diverse too. Just the amount of different wildlife and plants, et cetera, that you can find in a place like Louisiana where there is swampland, because that's so unique to most of the rest of the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, really just kind of spending, I spent the majority of time outside. Um, I hated wearing clothes. <laughs> I feel like it's a common Mississippi or Southern kind of picture of, of children playing in mud, but that's what I really did. And I think, that, <laughs> um, I think that's, I think my work centers itself around childlike observation. I think um, to look at something is to abstract it. And that's kind of the avenue where I see my work, where I, I come up with my images because it's, it's heavily, heavily observed and it's just looking really hard at things and imagining what it would be like if they were different and kind of that um, obscuring something through through examining what it is and um, I did that as a kid too I remember covering myself in mud and being naked outside on concrete sidewalks and in a backyard, wasn't in public, but um, I would mix, I would get the hose and I would mix, I would grind up chalk, like sidewalk chalk into a paste and I would like cover myself in it. And I think that's still kind of how I paint, not, not literally, but that's that love of material. I've always been a very tactile, sensory oriented person and artist I think so I'm interested in enveloping myself in the way that things feel and, and look so you know sometimes people say my work reminds them of children's children's art and I take it as a compliment but people usually say I'm sorry <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I think that is a compliment. I mean, was, yeah, it, was it, it Picasso is. that said a quote about? It took him his whole life to figure out how to draw like a child. He said he was trained. He was trained like Raphael by the time he was 13, but it took him the rest of his life to figure out how to draw like a, like a child. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating. So do you feel like did, did Were you trained and then did you untrain yourself or have you been able to keep this perspective and, and uh, a specific process 
or perspective to your work all along? Um, I draw from life constantly. I draw people's faces and imagined faces. I, that was the one of the first things I really, I mean, I have, you know, my notebooks from school are covered with just single eyeballs and like what the transition from the tear duct down to the nose and where the ear comes in. And so I'm, I really love that kind of work and I love landscape painting. So um, I like to, I really like painting water. Um, whenever I'm traveling and I know water is going to be near, I'll bring my watercolor and my paper and I'll use water for the paint from the little, so if I'm by a river, I'll just dip some, some river water and paint with that. Sometimes it smelled. I've had some like smelly paintings from that, but um, <laughs> it's kind of part of it. But I love, um, I love figuring out how things sit in a two-dimensional space. Um, I just think it's, it's fun. So. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, um, did you create from your child till now? Did you have training in school? How was that journey for you? Yeah. Um, my mom said that I've always had a, something in my hand um, and I drew all the time. I painted if I could get my hands on it or I was always kind of fidgeting with something. I was always tearing something up or, you know, arranging things on. I just like touching objects. Like, mm -hmm. I just like touching stuff. Um, but then I, I got really into, um, I loved drawing. I danced ballet when I was younger and I, I loved drawing the foot in a point shoe. Um, that sticks out in my memory. That's another thing that's in a bunch of my journals where um, I love horses and I would try to figure out how to draw the barrel of their chest and then like going into the hindquarters and their neck. Um, so yeah, like point shoes, horses, uh, eyeballs, that kind of stuff was my childhood kind of drawing and tie-dye, which I still kind of do. But I remember in the 90s, like tie and early 2000s, tie-dye was big for me. Oh yeah, I get some rubber bands and a white shirt. Yeah. It's a good that, time. I'm just drawing tie-dye. I really want oh, to- Oh, drawing tie-dye. I drew tie-dye all the time. Just Oh, wow. Trans I just thought it was so cool. Um, like just watching markers lay over each other and how color would change was fascinating so um and then I another memory is drawing scientific diagrams of cells and kind mm. of bio, biology drawings were really fun for me um and that's when I really really started to draw around seventh eighth grade and then in high school I did art and in college I did art and then in graduate school, I did art. So it's kind of been nonstop since I was about 10. That's amazing. What did, where did you go to undergrad? I went to the University of Mississippi. And would you, um, so did you do a BFA? What was your, what was your yes. time like there? I got a BFA in painting and I worked mainly with Philip Jackson and Sherry Reeve, who were 
Philip is the head of painting and Jerry was the head of printmaking. Um, so painting and printmaking and this kind of physical drawing, you know, I always thought of painting and printmaking as a, um, a collaboration of drawing and, you know, and color. So um, yeah, I got my BFA there and um, lived in Oxford for about a year as an artist, as a young little baby artist. I worked at Bottle Tree Bakery, um, which was very lovely. And Cynthia Gerlach let me hang some of my paintings in Bottle Tree that are still there. And um, I sold at Double Decker. And then I did an, um, a post-bac degree at the um, Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts in Philly. Um, and I had always wanted to go there because I did a, a book report on Mary Cassatt in the seventh grade. Oh, she went, she yeah. went there. And I love her work, but also Walter Anderson went there. So Walter was um, always a big influence in my life. Um, I think about him all the time, especially as a painter and a printmaker and his work with ceramics and that lineage um, surrounding Ocean Springs and the Mississippi Gulf Coast. So. Yeah, and that, his process sounds somewhat similar to yours and just the fascination with nature. Yeah. And the ever-changing nature of a particular place and landscape. Yeah. yeah, and the movement. I think a lot of his work is about movement, just the observation of movement. This is Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes. That was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. This is Sarah Story, Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. And I have with me today an artist who is currently in Mississippi, Claire Whitehurst. Hello. So thank you, Claire, again for being here. And uh, right before the break, we were talking about... Walter Anderson, one of uh, mm-hmm. probably the most well-known artists in Mississippi, I think. Would you agree? Or I think so. I think every, you know, the, the I'm sure you've seen it, the video of him that was probably made in the 70s or 80s. It's like grilled into my brain because I've watched it so many times. But um, yeah, he's kind of, and I think so much what we were talking about, he he is such an observant artist. He mm-hmm. was, and I think continues to be, just how documenting the landscape and then 
I think capturing something else that may be the surreal or divine within that. And the I think order. a lot of hmm? the order and the chaos. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cause that's so much of what we have to contend with here is, is how to exist in the environment and what it means to take care of it, you know, who has access to it. You know, all these things kind of come together in the environment. So true. Our, um, when I was working at the University Museum in Oxford in the education department, I was uh, teaching a lot of students in school groups about Walter Anderson and his motifs were one of my favorite things to talk about with kids because it was such an interesting way to think about the world in the way that he did of just dividing everything. Was it seven motifs that he created yeah. out of natural elements? And those represented so much to him. He was able to kind of create his worldview, like almost make his own order and language. And I always found that really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about entropy a lot recently, which is funny because I think that's that's kind of what his work is about, is yeah. how, things, how things come together and how things fall apart and what that looks like in the natural world and how that's reflected in societies and you know, personal relationships and narrative and it's, um, and I think that's what we look for. I think we look towards the natural world for answers to things that we don't know. And, and he was good at that. And I think sometimes I, I just have, cause not many people know him outside of the South, which is interesting. You're right. Um, and so I, you know, I lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and in Iowa and spent time in France. I talk about him and I show him to people and it's such a, it's such a captured world that he has, you know, it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. um, Yeah, it's very unique yeah. and very specific to a lot of it, at least, is very specific to one little island, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. or an island. Oh, I was going to say, I just had this clear image of him in my head, like strapping himself to a tree during a yes. hurricane. That's just such a powerful image that I've had since since I was a little girl. So, and I've also I love Theora Hamlet. Um, mm -hmm this kind of mystical attachment to the natural world too. Um, but I, I also worked at the Mary Bowie Museum and- um, What years were you there? Did we, we didn't overlap, did we? I don't know. I was an intern during college. I helped with archiving. Oh, okay, cool. For a brief period of time, but I got to be back there a lot with that those movable walls and the stacks and with her work and just see it. And, and she was also able to cap, capture this kind of the vibrations of the space that she was occupying and observing. I love her work. Yeah. She was able to capture really simple moments of life in really interesting ways. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So true in a very different way than Walter Anderson, but in her own way. 
Yeah. Also, she was always kind of hovering above everything. It was like she was a bird. Yeah. Always, all the perspective is is very mystic and you know spiritual and somehow lifted above. You know, I think a lot of Walter Anderson's work is from the perspective of a human body. Mm-hmm. Hers was always in the trees. Mm. It's so interesting, and the, I just love her. Yeah. I don't know. And a lot of her inspiration came from vis- visions that would actually, you know, interact with her. She would have a vision and make painting, which is has always been fascinating to me. That's incredible. Yeah. So tell tell us a little bit more about. So you were in Mississippi, then you said you were in France, Philadelphia, Iowa. What was the what was that like for you as an artist? Changing landscapes changing cities just I mean everything and those those four different environments are are very very different from each other yeah I think I did um I did a studio program for a year at the Academy of the Fine Arts in Philly and everything got really I I was obsessed with the grid I was you know I read Mm -hmm. you know Rosalind Krauss and like her ideas about grids and got really into um, Agnes Martin and just this idea of the repetition of a contained space. And I think it was because I was in a city and I'd never really lived. I was living in an apartment in downtown Philly and um, everything was so grid-like. I was living in a grid. I was living in an apartment shape. You know, it was like a perfect square. the tiles in my bathroom were square. Everything that I saw were like Amazon boxes and people shipping things. And so I just became really enamored with the rectangle. And so I was really interested in, in how abstraction exists within a rectangle. Um, Cause I think my ideas about abstraction were organic and um, contained um, rounded shapes and, and squiggles and, and things that were contained in the, you know, biology department. Um, but that's kind of what I did there. And then I moved to Iowa where I was kind of at a loss. I did, you know, it was, it's this big transition into graduate school. Uh, my cohort everyone was so talented and smart and I was just trying to find my footing and um, really reading as much as I could you know working as much as I could and then the snow came you know in October wow basically until from uh, October November until April oh my goodness so there's this and that rep- that presents an entirely different kind of physical experience of the world. So everything becomes trapped underneath the snow. And um, I started using the color white all the time. I was making mm. I was making these big plaster pieces. I would I was making these really kind of um, looked like little like Golgi apparatus and like mitochondria, like these tiny parts of things that were very vibrant and colorful. And then I would make a mold and pour like 
stark white ceramic plaster into it and let mm -hmm. it set up for about five minutes. And then I would press these colorful little pieces in it. And that's kind of how I was seeing the world. And it, that's what felt true at that moment. So I was making these kind of like snow fields. Wow. And, um, and I think it was just from walking and being in the snow for, you know, half a year. Um, right. So that affected me in that way. And um, I spent time in um, this little village outside of Montignac um, in the Dordogne region of Southern France, studying cave paintings my second summer. Uh, the summer after my first year of graduate school. So oh, wow. I, got, I was a Stanley fellow at the University of Iowa and right. um, was given funding to live in, in France for a summer. And I got to visit, I think around 40 different cave sites. Um, wow. I wasn't, you know, Lascaux and Chauvet and the big ones are closed. You know, Werner Herzog only got 10 minutes. <laughs> I wasn't going to get in there, but right, right. Um, there's hundreds of them around. And I think it was, I was really fascinated, I think, with my work in graduate school with how form, a physical form or a physical surface can inform the image that's created on top of it. So I was making these, these very touched surfaces and then going to make paintings on top of them. Mm. And I had always thought about cave paintings and that's what they are. It's these incredible tableaus on ancient rock. So um, I wrote about form and image and the way that those two things interact. And kind of as an investigation, I was proposing that I would go there and study these sites and then make a body of work in response to it, which is what I did. And um, so I would go in my little backpack and I would take my paint and lots of colored pencils. And I would go into these caves that you can't have anything in there and run out and immediately try to like make something that was wow. close to what I, which was kind of, it was absolutely intimidating. I knew I wasn't going to get close, but I just, I knew I had to make some kind of mark. I mean, to be, most of the time I was crying. I mean, it was just such an awe, truly awesome experience to be in front of those um, paintings. But sometimes, and I, I started thinking and reading and working with people that talked about cave paintings as forms of early animation. And so the way that the rock formations were used to inform the paintings. Um, sometimes a, a rock formation would, would protrude and jut out. And then as you move across, it would become the, the hindquarters of a, a bison. And so if you recreate the light source that these people had when they were making, it was a, a, an animal fat lamp with a flickering flame. And wow. so as that flickering happens, the, the pictures actually begin to move from the light hitting the surface. So um, I was thinking a lot about animation and, and just how things move, I guess, going back to that observation of movement. Mm -hmm. And that was overwhelming, you know, there's only so much I could 
really do because I was taking in so much. Right. But, um, my idea was to create a cave. <laughs> I, I drilled holes into the wall and like stuck um, wooden dowels into the wall and then made these paintings on sheer fabric and then strung those on top of the wooden dowels so they kind of moved when people walked by wow and then I made drawings but it was it was incredible but it's I think I'm only now you you know it's still bubbling up through the surface I don't that's I, awesome yeah how how long was your grad program three years oh that's nice yeah it was incredible um, and then yeah like being back here I'm being introduced to all the greens that I hadn't seen you know I'm switching out white for green so green is a I forgot how truly diverse the green is in the trees here in the ground it's just growth mm -hmm. all over the place this is sarah story the executive director of the mississippi arts commission you are listening to the podcast version of the mississippi arts hour to have access to all arts hour interviews subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app you can also listen to the show on mpb think radio every sunday afternoon at 5 p.m Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. This is Sarah Story, Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. And I am here today with Claire Whitehurst, a painter, printmaker, and ceramicist living and working in Jackson, Mississippi. So we were talking just before the break um, about how you were influenced as an artist from your surroundings. So tell us a little bit more about um, about the landscape here and how that's influencing um, what you're creating now in your studio. Everywhere else was kind of this, I was learning a new place. So I'm kind of remembering a lot of things. So I think, I, I think a lot about memory and place and kind of all the things that go into kind of the emotional landscape of a place that you know. Because the last time I, I um, was living in Mississippi, you know, I was making my work not in secret, but to myself, but I think I, the way I made money, part of the way I made money after college, I was painting people's houses and mm -hmm. painting the landscape and painting things that I thought, you know, would sell because I was trying to make money. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, Look, we, we all have been there. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like re having this incredible opportunity to relearn the landscape, relearn kind of myself as, you know, a person who's living here and my relationships with my family. And I had my first garden over the summer here in Mississippi. I had my first first garden in Iowa, which was yeah. fine. But, um, you know, there's a much, much longer growth window and in Mississippi for gardens. Right. So I think um, tending to that little garden gave me so much to think about in terms of memory and, and place. And plants have always been a big part of my life. And I think I'm realizing that I need, I need that constant interaction for my work too. So I think about, 
the way that leaves are organized and how little sprouts come up and the symmetry of all of that. And I was making these, my most recent body of work, which was just in a show in LA was about, about the memory of my childhood kind of, and then coming back as an adult and as a, you know, professional educated, you know, freshly out of grad school artist, like trying to make sense of all of that. So um, a lot of a kind of remembered imagery, you know, the smell of tomatoes is like very, very intense for me. And I had a little tomato garden and I would go and take care of them. I would pick the little dead leaves off and, and, you know, take care of it the way you're supposed to. And then I would go into my studio and kind of make work about loosely about tomatoes, but about probably a lot of other stuff too. Um, but yeah, relearning and just reobserving the place where I grew up and, and seeing it with new eyes, with better eyes, you know, is just a constant problem for me to solve. You know, the going back and forth, I think being on, you know, I just haven't lived here in about 12 years. So it's, it's interesting to be a part of it again in a new way. Yeah, I think that's um, incredible. The opportunity to rediscover a place after being gone for that long. Yeah. Because you, is for me at least, coming, coming back after about the same amount of time, it's so true. Like so much has changed, but then so much hasn't changed. And so yeah. like, what do you do with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's... I think that's, I use layers a lot and I think of layers in that, kind of in that way too, memory layers of the memory of something versus the reality or, you know, what you think of something versus what it actually is. And I think that's kind of my emotional playground when it comes to art is like, how do I translate those kind of really complicated or intangible thoughts into something that's tangible and visual and so that's kind of what I've been doing and I've been I've been making drawings um then I've been making a lot of ceramic um, pieces and then drawings of those ceramic pieces as kind of a jumping off point but they're very um I have one right here but I know you can't see it on the radio, but these are very like handled, they look like jungle gems, um, going back to an idea of a playground, but kind of really handled things that, that manipulate the surface and then how color sits on top of that. And then what it means, I guess, for me right now to observe that and try to make a drawing or a painting of it um, and kind of getting lost in that translation you know, form, um, I think gives a lot of space for me to think about the concepts that I want to deal with. Yeah. I mean, does that help you? Does that help you think through memory and the way that we reinterpret something or change something yeah. in a new yeah. way? I think so. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah, it's just, I need my, ba my I need my hands to like babysit my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, then, you know, things come out of it, but um, that's what I've been doing. 
lately. I'm about to start a new body of work for, a, um, I have my first big solo show at a, at a gallery in LA called Steve Turner Contemporary, which is such a gift and so exciting. And awesome. yeah, I'm um, very excited. Um, but I'm working with a friend of mine who makes the carpenter in Jackson and he's making me these kind of wooden cage structures that I'm going to wrap linen around. I've, I've like, I love linen and like the raw linen. Um, so I'm going to, I'm playing around with that, but I'm going to make a body of shaped paintings to kind of combine these drawings that I had been doing over the summer and part of the early fall. And then these more complicated physical structures of the ceramics. Um, I think it'd be interesting to stretch a skin over that and, and make a painting on top of it. So that's what I'm working on now. Um, yeah, it's like a flattened bird cage kind of, but then wrapped That's cool. And then, yeah. So we'll see where that goes. It might just be a stepping stone to something else, but yeah. that's, what that's what I'm thinking of right now. That's awesome. And um, what else are you working towards at the moment? So you have that big show. So that'll be mostly 3D, more 3D images or 3D yeah, materials. Yeah, yeah. three-dimensional, but with like three 2D, two 3D. I guess both at the same time. Cool, yeah. But um, I'm working on that. And then I, I'm working on a show with a good friend of mine named Taylor Lofton, who is an artist um, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, originally, also originally from Jackson, but he um, is a good friend over the years. We actually met at Penland School of Craft like oh, yeah. years ago. And um, I'm just, I've always been such a huge fan of his work. And so we have a two person show at Binder Projects in Memphis. Cool. In and um, yeah, it's just been so much fun talking to him and, and thinking about our work together. Um, but I think I'm gonna show a lot of ceramic work in that show and then the drawings that I've been doing. And he's been making ceramic work too. Um, he works closely with Linda Lopez, who is the head of ceramics at um, the University of Arkansas, who I, I'm obsessed with her work too. Um, she actually came and visited Iowa while I was there. Which oh, great. Funny. I know, it's like all of these little connections. It's awesome. insane. And then I have, I'm part of a three person show in Atlanta in March at Spalding Nick's Fine Art, um, which I'm very excited about. And then I've been invited to be a guest artist at um, Watershed Ceramics in in Maine over the summer. That's so um, cool. Yeah, so I've been invited by um, Susan Klein and Suzanne Dittenberg. Dittenberg, might not be saying her last name right, but they're painters from North Carolina. Um, and I'm just really excited. It's about painters who use ceramics in wow. their work in the surfaces. Um, so wow. I'm really, really excited for that. And um, I just published a book um, 
with drum machine editions out of Asheville, North Carolina. And it's a book of screen prints that are presented in these mirrored pairs. And it's it's kind of goes back to this translation of memory through form. Um, and it was a series of drawings I made in the early pandemic, right as everything was shutting down. And I just wore my, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what the world was gonna look like. It was kind of, everything felt like it was falling apart. Um, so I just drew. Mm -hmm. and I just made these drawings and um, it was really incredible to be able to make a book with, with my friend Eric who runs um, Draw Machine Editions. Um, he's a wonderful printmaker. Um, he is from, he's from Pennsylvania, but I, he went to grad school in Tallahassee, Florida, and then moved um, to North Carolina. And he's a wonderful printmaker. And it was, it was just cool to dissect my images and have somebody help me make them and through a different, you know, matrix, which was, it was just, they changed, you know, they, they came alive again in this, in this new way. And I got to write about them with him. And his partner is an old friend of mine, Whitney Gilchrist. So she, I was able to reconnect with my friend and write about my work. And it was just a really great experience. And um, that came out November 2nd. Awesome. So yeah, there's a lot going on. You've been busy right after grad school. That's awesome. That's so good to I, hear. I really did not expect to be, <laughs> but I'm so great. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think it was, I didn't know what else to do. And I, so I did it, you know, it all kind of came from having ideas like kind of silly ideas. And the more I lean into the ideas that I have, I thought for a long time that I, they were silly, but I don't, maybe they're not. I get to do fun projects with my friends and um, yeah, it's been great. And I love teaching too, that my students give me so much energy and perspective and challenge me and it's fun. I, I, when you're talking about teaching art history, I can imagine that that would just be such a, a delight to be able to revisit so many different periods of art history and just, just have that time to, sh to, to study again or rediscover different oh, yeah. periods and share. It's such a good, I mean, it's, I can't believe it every day. I'm just like, I can't believe I get to you know, teach this content, but then it's also enriching my life and my work in such a profound way. And a lot of the stuff I haven't revisited since in a meaningful academic, you know, app, like looking at it, looking at it and talking about it or writing about it since I was close to their age, like 18 or 19 freshman year of college in an art history survey, mm -hmm. you know, and to to actually be able to interact with the breadth of, you know, there's, a, I have to cover it all mm -hmm. in the AP curriculum. So it's really interesting to understand the chronology of, <laughs> or look at it. I know it's not the whole chronology, but 
how we did stuff and how we, the more and more I learn about our history is it's really just, it's observation and documentation. Right. Who was able to pay which artist for what, and you know, who had the money and who had the land and uh, you can track a lot of things through art. And back to your point about memory, we never know what wasn't tracked. You know, there's so yeah. much that's that's missing because of so much of art, like many other things have been driven by um, power and money, right? So yeah. it's interesting to think about that as well. Yeah. And with power, like you, most always comes corruption. So like looking at what we have left is also asking why that's what we have left. Like what right. was destroyed, what was hidden or obscured by mm -hmm. the people who are writing the histories of the world. And so that's a really interesting conversation to have with, with teenagers who, you know, are living in a world that I am a part of, but I wasn't there, you know, age within. And sure. That's great. Well, thanks so much um, for sharing all of that. And where can people find you now? Um, I have a website and an Instagram. So my website is www.clairewhitehurst.com. Just one word. And then I have Instagram, which I love. It's such a wonderful tool for artists. Um, it's at Claire underscore Downs, D-O-W-N-E-S, which is my middle name, but it's also my Instagram handle. So Claire Downs. And then yeah, that's kind of where I share all the information about shows and um, upcoming stuff that I'm doing. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.